As we prepare for our scripture reading, I'd invite you to open your Bibles, Mark 7, 1 to 13. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and our team will make sure you get one. I love when you can follow along in scripture and read it for yourself. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you so you can read throughout the week as well. Mark 7, 1 to 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, it was amazing to watch you walk in this morning and uh, see your faces and you're like, whoa, what has happened? Complete reorientation. And that is extremely purposed. If you walked in after Cam, our our worship leader, uh, described this morning, we want you to feel like this is different. This is strange because here's what has happened to me over the last few years as it relates to the Christmas season. Christmas is coming. Did you realize that? Christmas is coming, and by and large, people are kind of anticipating that, and many people aren't really, really ready, and they don't, uh, I'm a self-disciplined person, which means I usually prepare for things in advance, but many of us are not, and even sometimes I get caught up, and you end up getting to Christmas, and there's all this anticipation for it, the day happens, and then you wake up the next day, Boxing Day, and you're like, that was it? There was all of that energy and excitement for yesterday? I woke up like any other day. I got some gifts, kind of disappointed with some of the gifts, <laughs> excited about some of the other ones. What was my mother-in-law thinking when she found this? <laughs> and you essentially are very much, th- this was where we get ready for it every year, and that's it. So what we're trying to do here at Church of the City is say, Christmas is more than just the day. Christmas is the season as we anticipate the birth of our King. That's what this is all about. So if you're sitting there, like none of us stood for singing, right? And you maybe were like, why are we just sitting? Can I stand? We want you to get a bit uncomfortable. We want you to walk in and say, this is different because this season, we want to create as a season as we anticipate. So the next four weeks on Sundays are going to feel very different than what we typically do. Anticipating then Christmas Eve, where we're going to have a Christmas Eve service, uh, 6 p.m. on the 24th at Crestwick. 
Baptist church because uh, we can't use this space. And we're going to then celebrate what Christmas is. So our hope is that you participate in the next five times we're really getting together. And we're taking a break from Exodus. We're going to get back to Exodus, but we're going to take a break. Now, as it relates to Christmas and as it relates to you and I, I find that Christmas reveals for many people how they relate to God or what they think about God. If you are someone that would say, I, I very much am a committed follower of Jesus, for you at Christmas time, you're going to say, I'm anticipating the birth of Jesus. But then the way that you celebrate that might look different than maybe some other Christians. For some people, you're getting into the practice of Advent. You've been doing it for years. And so you're kind of sitting here like, wow, finally my church caught up with this. This is good. Others of you are maybe like, Advent, interesting. Uh, Never really heard about that before. Cool. Some of you are maybe not really accustomed to the whole Jesus movement or the church. You're sitting here. You wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian. You might even describe yourself as 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 an atheist person, an agnostic. There might be something there. And so you're kind of like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Christians seem really into, like, the whole Christmas thing. They get mad at people when they put Xmas. Like, uh, they seem to be really all about this. They were mad last year about Starbucks cups. Like, what's with those folks? Um, I read a book a few years ago, and it's called With. It's by a guy named Sky Jathani. If you want to go a little bit deeper into what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, what I've done is I've taken this book, and I've taken some of its concepts— jumped into the Bible and said, is this biblical? Grab some passages from the Bible that help us understand. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about four ways that people relate to God. We're going to talk today about life under God. So I'll describe that in a little bit. Next week's going to be life over God. People that kind of see God as being in more of a deist perspective, like there is a God, but I'm not really like connected with him. And we kind of just got to get on with our life void of him. Then you have people that see life from God. Life from God is kind of the prosperity gospel that you go to God because you need wealth and health, and then God will make your life great. Then we're going to look at life for God, that the greatest, people believe that the greatest thing you could ever do for God is to only do specific Christian activity and Christian employment, because that's the greatest thing that I can do for God. Completely void of all the other folks that aren't doing specific Christian employment. And if you were part of Church of the City a while back, we did our work series, you know that we don't agree with that. We need people in all spheres, in all places working. And then Christmas, Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about life with God. And this is the way that we are called to relate to Jesus. Now the question is, why don't we relate to our relationship with God as a with relationship? If I'm going to ask you the question, what is it like for you in your experience with Jesus? How do you experience God? What has he been talking to you lately? What has he been revealing to you in the scriptures lately? Many people, Christians, will sit there and go, what did my pastor talk about on Sunday? Or well, this is kind of what I know about Christianity for the many years. But as far as an experience with God, there's a missing piece. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. Why do we have this problem? Why do we have this problem of not knowing how to do life with him? It says this in Genesis 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, we get God's vision of how he brought chaos, or he brought order out of chaos creation. And in Genesis 3 verses 1 to 7, we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Number one point, Satan's a liar. Adam and Eve are dead. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, a little bit of a review. When God creates humanity, he says, you are created in my image. They already are like God. But Satan says, I can give you another vantage point. I can make you more like God, knowing good and evil. I can give you control over what has created you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to be make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, if you're new to the Bible, this is an interesting text. Talking, talking snake, talking serpent. They're naked. This is a nudist colony. There's a lot of backstory. We can talk about it at another point. What you need to pick up is that humanity is rebelling against its creator. They want control. They're not willing to just submit and do life with God because we read earlier that he is with them in the garden. They know his presence. They know his nearness. And as soon as they say, we want to take control, separation. And so what humanity has been doing ever since then is trying to get back to that union of withness. We're trying to get control back and many of us do it out of a place of fear. So many people are controlled in their motivations by fear. You know this. You experience this. And many of us in this room would say, I want the experience of Genesis 1 and 2. I want to be with them again. I want perfect union. Well, we look forward to that one day when Christ returns. But I would argue that there are many of us in this room that don't relate to God in the way that we are called to relate to him in a union of a presence relationship. And instead what we've done is we've turned to alternatives. Life under God, life over God, life from God, life for God are all alternatives to the truth. But we're called to be doing life with him. You ready to explore life under? So, in our text today, Mark 7, chapters, verses 1 to 13. Mark 7, verses 1 to 13. We are introduced to a pretty interesting scenario. Uh, Amanda read it for us earlier, in which Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees and the scribes. They come to him, and they notice something about his disciples that is different than what was expected by them. Now, in this text, we're told that the, 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 or the Pharisees are saying, your disciples don't wash their hands in the way that they're supposed to wash their hands in the way that the tradition of the elders says that you're to wash your hands. Now you might be sitting there like, what is this? What is up with these rituals? What is this thing that they're talking about? Well, during this time, 
it was viewed that those with material blessings were seen as righteous, and those who suffered, they suffered because they were sinners. This was a perspective on the culture, that if you want to be blessed, and if you want to have money, then the way to do that is to be a really obedient and righteous person. That's what the Pharisees believed. The Pharisees were not the power brokers in Jewish society. They were trying to impose their religious vision of morality and obedience to the law on Israel. And in this scenario, they're actually trying to shame Jesus in public. All right, that's their motive. That's their intention. Washing their hands had to do with purity, not hygiene. And they expected Jesus' disciples to follow their standards of piety because Jesus stood in opposition to smooth, running, holy community in their perspective. So you see what's going on here? Jesus isn't doing what we think he should be doing. A little bit of detail on the tradition of the elders. This was unscriptural law. This was not based on something in the Old Testament. This is purely what they created to have control over other people. We actually read in Exodus 30, verses 19 to 21, that the washing of hands was a practice for the priests. It wasn't the practice of the Jewish community. But what the Pharisees and scribes, the Pharisees have done, is they said, listen, we want to gain control over people, so we'll make everybody wash their hands. And because we want to be in God's good books and we want to be blessed, we now have to become the brokers or the morality police so that they obey. And if they obey, then we can actually have blessing. But if we don't obey, who wants to not obey and then be called a sinner and be a bad person? Do you see their mentality? So here's what happens. If Jesus undermines the washing of hands, he's actually redefining what it means to be a Jew. That's how big this is. If Jesus says, I'm now, I don't require my disciples to wash their hands, he's redefining what it means to be a Jew in those days under that law. Moreover, the disregard of purity was assumed that uncleanliness belongs to the realm of death and demons and breaks fellowship with God. So if Jesus is to disregard this, he means he is redefining what it is that inhabits fellowship with God. So he's not only redefining the Jewish identity, he's redefining how you are in relationship with the maker of the universe. So obviously the Pharisees have an issue. They're like, we have an agenda here because we're trying to live a blessed life based upon our obedience to God. And you're getting in the way of that. How dare you? Now in defense of the Pharisees, They come from a line of Israelite people that disobeyed God a lot. Right? You read the Old Testament. And much of the reason in their disobedience, what ended up happening was God did bring them into slavery. But it was for disobedience to his scriptural law, not unscriptural law. And they're walking around like morality police trying to control people, which as we see in life under God is actually trying to gain control back over God. Because if I obey God and all the ways that I think I need to obey him, then I gain control back from him because now he owes me. So this is what life under God is. Life under God is an attempt to regain control 
through obedience. This posture sees God in simple cause and effect terms. We obey his commands and he blesses our lives, our families, and our nation. Our primary role is to determine what he approves or disapproves and work vigilantly to remain within those boundaries. Obeying God's commands and being devoted to his work is the prescription for joy, peace, contentment, and fulfillment. And we need to seek definitive understanding of God's laws and his expectations. So many of us in the room, that's been our experience with Christianity. Christianity is just a bunch of rules. Look at all those people there. They think they're more moral than me. Don't forget what Jesus does here. Jesus is never concerned primarily about your external actions. He's concerned about your brain. Because if he can change the way that you think, it will change the way that you live. He's not about being a morality police over people's actions. He's about changing their minds so that they begin to relate to him in a completely different way. Now, this not only happens in Christianity— This happens in many world religions, and you'll see if you have a sermon note today, there's a diagram there. And many people, when they think about world religions, think about it in a a way of there's A, B, C, D world religions on the bottom, and they're all at the bottom of a mountain, and what they're trying to do is climb up the mountain to get to God. But what that diagram really fails to represent is that at the end of the day, people believe that all world religions lead to the same place, which is not the case. And that's actually a very shallow view of world religions if you start actually studying them. What it, what it should be is an inverted mountain where we all start at the same place of trying to fear and control God, and then it goes out from there into many different ways that people believe that they can actually do it. So in a life under God scenario, the belief of the, the person that lives in a life under God is if my nation would only obey God— If we would return to Christian principles in our nation, God would bless us and we'd all have blessed lives. But do you see what you've done in that perspective? You've said God now owes us because we obey him. It's not about a relationship with Jesus. It's about trying to control him through rituals. If I do my devotions, this is a more everyday example. If I do my devotions, if I attend my small group, if I, uh, if I go to my small group and listen to Christian music only, if I save my sex for marriage, then God will bless my life because he owes me for my obedience. I was talking to somebody this week and they're like, I'm, I'm doing my devotions with Jesus and I'm really struggling because, well, I don't feel him. I was like, okay, well, let's, let's journey through that a little bit. What, what are you expecting of that time with him? They'll show up. Why do you think he should show up? Because um, I obey him a lot? Like, you're trying to gain control back over God by your obedience, not because you have a relationship with him. Because he suddenly owes you. Or a second example, if our nation returns to Christian principles, only God, then will God bless our nation. Now let's look at the shortcomings of this view. It reinforces the rebellion of humanity in Eden. The irony of life under God is that we are seeking to exert control over God through strict adherence to rituals and absolute obedience to moral codes. Through our obedience, we put God into our debt and we then expect him to do our bidding in exchange for our worship and right enough behavior. Do you see how that works? It just reinforces the problem from the very beginning. And secondly, life under God does not reduce fear. In actuality, it has made the world a far more dangerous and fearful place to live. 
Because life under God does not solve our fear problem. It simply makes us afraid of God and his creation. And so there's another diagram on your sheet of which the, the triangle represents God and then a human being under God try, like getting squashed by all of the expectations that they feel they need to live under. And so life in many ways becomes unbearable because I can't do everything. And then what you have amongst many world religions is that you have actually really damaging things happen to our world because people are, quote, doing the will of God. And this is the type of thing that Hitchens and all of the new atheists and atheists in general rail against is the Christians that do terrible things to the world because they say that they're doing it because of God and his will. So let's look, uh, for example, at, at Islam. The horrific events of September 11th, 2001 reveal what happens when the life under God approach is taken outside the prescribed channels of a free society. Three years before the attacks, the leaders of Al-Qaeda issued a fatwa, which is an Islamic legal pronouncement denouncing the presence of American troops in the Arabian Peninsula, the holiest of places. Believing America was defying God's will, Al-Qaeda's declaration said, In complaints with Allah's order, we issue the following fatwa to all Muslims. The ruling to kill the Americans and their allies, civilians and military, is an individual duty for every Muslim. When the United States failed to remove its forces from Saudi Arabia, 19 young men used airlines as guided missiles to kill 3,000 Americans in Manhattan, Washington, D.C., and the Pennsylvania. The terrorists believed they were obeying God's will and be rewarded for their obedience. Why? Well, I've got to obey this God so that then I get the destiny that he's promised me. Now, some of us as Christians are like, oh man, those Muslims. This is what a prominent Christian leader did following the attacks. He pointed his finger at pagans, abortionists, the LGBTQ society as the ones who contributed to this as well. Because America was not living life under God. Do you see? We'll control you, God, by obeying you more. And what you see is it actually continues to propel fear, anger, frustration, and it continues to drive us apart. So what does Jesus say? Right? What's Jesus' reply to these people that are like, you're not obeying all the rules, we got to get back to the rules. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition He then gives them an example of in which Moses, in scriptural law, says we're to honor our father and mothers. Now, in this society, that meant that a child was to take care of their parents. And they were, therefore, in many ways, much of their financial resources would go towards their parents. Some of you in the room that are older are like, wow, we should really, you know, really rethink that one, too. Um, 
what the Pharisees would do is they'd say, I don't need to obey that because I'll call Corbin on it. Now, this Corbin was a way of saying, this is actually going to get dedicated to the will of, and the work of God. So, Saka, you don't get the care. I'm giving it away to God now. Because for them, remember their mentality. The more I do for God, the more he will bless me. So the more I dedicate and give to God, he owes me now. So too bad for you parents. I'm after the blessing of God first. And Jesus walks in and he's like, you're completely misinterpreting. You're completely putting your own laws above God's laws. Because you want control of God. You have, your heart has not been changed. And as we see in the passage that follows, Jesus is like, your motivations is completely wrong. You don't have this thing right. What is he saying of life under God? Life under God is disguised selfishness and idolatry. The emphasis is on appeasing God through behaviors, either in the form of rituals or a moral yoke. Now, what are some current day equivalents? Well, sometimes in Christian communities, we have an oral tradition that fills the gaps and directs us on what we should do and what we should not do. Ready for a classic example? You can't wear hats at church. Where does it say that in the Bible? You have to dress up to be in the presence of other Christians, and especially the presence of God. How dare you come into our sanctuary? We need perfect rugs on the floor in this sanctuary. Why aren't you showing up to our missional community? Where have you been? At times, these things go into a realm that they're not intended to be in. And what happens under this realm is that oftentimes Christian leaders and pastors fall into this category of believing that I'm now the morality police of our congregation. Friends, I have a confession. I stay up at night worrying about you. You can go and ask my wife about it. Now in the scriptures, the elders of the church are called to be caretakers and shepherds of the Christian community. That we will answer to God about how the church functioned. Were you building up the kingdom? Were you preaching the gospel? But I need to confess that sometimes I take that too far and I believe that I'm supposed to control things and not surrender that control to God. You will ultimately be responsible for the way in which you live your life with Jesus. You will ultimately be responsible for the gospel and if you've, whether or not you've believed it. I'm not the ultimate authority on that in your life. So when I lie there awake at night wondering about where this, these folks have been lately, wondering how we could maybe maneuver or change things so that maybe it would fit their, their desires, in that way sometimes I'm forgetting what, what, who's in control. And I'm trying to lean into like life under God because if we just get it all figured out, then God's going to grow this thing and more people are going to come to know Jesus. And that's a good thing. So it feels right. And it feels righteous that I have those worries. And the Spirit tells me over and over again that that's just disguised selfishness and idolatry. 
The next thing of life under God is life under God is actually hypocrisy because it can never look into a person's heart. So you claim to control your actions, but what about the heart motivations? Right? So the Pharisees are trying to control their externals, but what about their internal heart thing? And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus blows the top off of your external actions and looks directly at the heart. He says, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, that if you sleep with another man's wife, you've committed adultery. Let me blow this up for you. You look on someone else with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. You're angry with the person. You've heard it said that if you murder somebody, then you've committed murder. I tell you, if you look on somebody with anger, you've committed murder in your heart. He blows the top off. See what he's doing? He's blowing the top off of our actions because he wants your heart. Because if he has your heart, then you won't look on somebody with anger. You'll see them through grace. Because I've been loved and accepted by Jesus. Who am I to be angry? Who am I to enforce something on them? You know, last night, uh, I just got to confess, Andre and I, we were like, man, it'd be really nice to have a date night. We had a gift card. Praise the Lord for gift cards to the keg. And uh, uh, we reached out to our missional community because one of our covenants, uh, commitments to one another as a community is that when uh, those in our group have kids and want to go on a date night, the others in our missional community will step up and look after our kids. It's amazing. Those of you who are not in a missional community with kids now are like, I'm going to theirs. That sounds amazing. Um, so last night, put it out on our PNP uh, Facebook messaging thread. Hey, uh, we're, we want to do this. Uh, anyone available? Bianca Safian, you are awesome, right there. She's like, I am. So we got her, brought her over the house, picked her up at 6.30 so we could, you know, leave by 7. Well, doesn't Nixon just have, like, the biggest tantrum of the week? He would not go to bed. And so we're still at home at 8 o'clock. And he is screaming, and he is yelling, to the point where now he wakes up Cade. How dare you, you little sinner. And so I go upstairs... (laughs) I go upstairs. I go upstairs and I I go into Nixon's room. And by this point, I'm like, I got a keg dinner awaiting me. I've got a beautiful woman downstairs. I want to take her. I need done with you right now. And he's yelling. And there was this one point where I read this blog once where this dad, this is going to close you. I'm just outing myself. But he said that at one time my kid was yelling at me. So I kind of like did a bit of a yell back to him. And then he stopped yelling. So in a last ditch effort... In my son's room last night, I tried this method. It failed. He kept yelling. And then Andrea heard that I yelled at my son, so she comes like running into the room and is like, leave, get out of the room, you don't know what you're doing. And I'm like, you're right, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and I leave the room and then I'm holding Cade. And I don't got like the perfect rock thing figured out yet. Some of you do. But Cade now is crying because Nixon's crying. Now he's awake and it's like, Lord, are we ever going to get to go on our date night? And, and, and we have, of course, we, of course, of course we left the monitors on downstairs. So Bianca is able to listen to everything that has just happened. So then I like go downstairs like feeling complete shame, right? Just walking downstairs and like, oh man, Bianca heard all that. We're going to go for a date night. She's going to like call somebody to get them here to like, you know, you just go to the worst places in your mind. And I'm like, Bianca, like parenting is like the hardest thing ever. What's up with this little kid? Did not realize that like we were going to go out and have a beautiful night. And we did end up going out. We ate beautiful food. 
because Bianca was like, you're going. You're going. We're like, fine, we'll go. So we go, and, and the keg always asks you when you sit down. I think they always ask you because we sat down, they asked us, and then the people behind us sat down, they asked them too. And uh, they were like, are you here for a special occasion? <laughs> uh, initially, I'm like, no, we're just doing life. We need to be here right now. And then Andrea uh, later on was like, we're away from our kids. That's our special occasion. <laughs> but as I'm sitting there, what, am I, what, am I, what is this tangent for? The reason that I'm telling this story is that my reaction to my son was completely about if I can control his actions, if I can control his activity, then I'll win. And what I needed to be changed in my heart was, I do this to God, Father, all the time. In which he's just like, I'm I'm right here. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to calm you down. I want to hold you. And you're just screaming, you want your Thomas, you want your Percy, you want your Gordon tank engines. But I'm right here. You want your soother, we've taken it away. We're trying this method, we're trying to get it taken away. Those things will deceive you because it's not the real thing. And I'm here for relationship. You see, I need my heart changed. You know, we were leaving, we were driving, and Andre said, you know what, some parents, that's their reality every single night. God bless you. May he give you patience. The single parents in the room, God bless you. I don't know. If it was just me, man, we'd have issues. Real, real. We already have issues, but they would go like, well done. But as we were driving to the keg, I'm thinking like, man, God gives me grace every single day. He loves me. He's proven that to me. I need my heart changed. I just didn't need my actions. Because if Andrea comes in and just scolds me about my actions, I'm like, oh, man. I feel worse because we're trying to live life under God. So then you really figure out is like how good is good enough. So here's the bankruptcy of life under God. It does not deliver from fear. It cannot reconnect us with God. And it burdens us under the weight of guilt, fear, and empty religiosity. So here's the gospel alternative. You ready? Jesus says this, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Here's what the Pharisees were saying. Hand-washing draws you closer to God. Here's what Jesus says. You have drifted from God. Morality comes from a pure heart. Moralism from a selfish one. So here's what I'm not doing. I'm not saying that Christians' lives should not look different. But I'm saying your motivations for how your life looks different is the issue. And it's because of a burden. It's because, well, once I do this, then God's going to bless me. And the moment I sit down with someone and they start telling me all the good things that they're doing and then how God's not coming up with, his, with what he's supposed to be doing because of my obedience, I can go, boom, life under God. Now, some of you are like, but yeah, but like, what about like, 
my sin, like my actions. This is what it says in Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't need to feel shame anymore because Christ has done something for you that you could never do for yourself. He lived the life you could not live and died the death that you rightfully should die. But he's taken that and he sees and saw all of your sin before you committed it. Which means, last night, me yelling at Nixon, he saw that before the foundation of the world. And was like, I'm still going to die for that guy. It's complete. Salvation is complete in Jesus. But here's what we want to do. Listen, that grace thing, that's risky. Right? We want tangibles. We want, if I would only obey God more, then he owes me. He owes me heaven because I'm obeying him really good. But then you miss your heart motivations. And he says your heart motivations are just as important as your external actions. He says, let's change their heart. Let's show them what true love is. So that when they come into contact with true love, then they will automatically need to share that love with others. But grace is risky. But wouldn't you rather take the risk of grace than living a life of fear under God? To know what he's done for you? To realize how much he loves you? To look at Jesus and what he's done as our motivation? You see, everything that we are called and, and, and le- leveled and drawn to do in Jesus is everything that he's already done for us. You know how we know Christ's love for us? He left heaven, came to earth, to be surrounded by people like you and me to save us. So what's your motivation for doing things that are really in the way of you and your life for somebody else? Jesus. Because if he could leave heaven to come to earth for you, then how can we can't go out of our way to help other people? If he could be generous enough, if God could be generous enough for you in sending you Jesus, why can't we just at least just say 10% minimum, the maximum's 100 If you struggle, let's be honest, if you struggle with generosity— It's because you haven't looked at a generous Jesus. Now you're like, Matt, now you're moving into like external actions. Yes, because later in the scripture it said the faith without works is dead. But notice where it starts. Faith, then our works. Not works, faith. Morality is different than moralism. You know what the difference is? If you're a moralism person, you constantly are judging everybody else around you. If you're a person that simply desires morality because of what Christ has done for you, you look at other people and say, you need the grace of Jesus as much as I need the grace of Jesus. Do you get the difference? This is life under God. This is what Reinhold Nabur said. Religion is not the place where the problem of man's egotism is automatically solved. Right? Religion is not the place where the problem of man's egotism is automatically solved. Rather, it is there that the ultimate battle between human pride and God's grace takes place. Insofar as human pride may win the battle, religion can and does become one of the instruments of human sin. 
Did you catch that? Insofar as human pride may win the battle, religion can and does become one of the instruments of human sin. But insofar as there the self does meet God and so can surrender to something beyond its own self-interest, religion may provide the one possibility for a much-needed and very rare release from a common self-concern. So people will say, turn to religion. It's the greatest thing for you. And many people get there, and they're like, this just is all about morality and moralism. Because when they got to the place of Christ, they looked at people and Christians around them, and it was all about, let's just kind of now just control your actions, rather than let's continue to look at Christ and the cross and his love and his sacrifice. And human pride took them to the other place, but then they looked at Christ, and their actions changed. Do you catch me? Does this make sense? Jesus changes our lives. I can try to change you, but I will die trying and I will never have to get enough sleep. Only Jesus and the power of what God has done for you and for me will change us. So you're struggling in an area of sin? Look to Jesus. You don't care much about the Bible? Look to Jesus. Only his sacrifice will change you because it's radical, it's enormous, and that message has been changing the world ever since he came. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, each and every single one of these weeks is going to lean into a different group of people every week. God, for those of us this morning who have been living in a religiosity of moralism, God, we respond to what I've just said and what you've revealed to me in, no, hold on, we've got we've to we've obey stuff. And God, there, there is time and a place for some of those things, but God, some of the things that we are holding on to, we just want because we want comfortable lives and we're not willing to engage in the messiness that is life. God, we live in a world where people are struggling under the weight of anxiety and fear. And many of the ways, Lord, that we have read the Bible is simply giving people more religion and fear and anxiety because we're not measuring up. God, your grace has been provided for us. You've forgiven every single sin that I've committed in the past, in the present, and in the future. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross and came back from the grave, you said, this is finished. Your sin is finished. It's been forgiven. It's been paid for. So God, I pray for those of us in this room, God, that are being Pharisees. May your grace woo us. Draw us in. God, I pray for those in this room that are kind of doing life and saying, okay, there's the gospel thing, heard it once, but now I'm just going to do my life, giving no concern for what the gospel's truth changes in our lives. God, we're going to talk about more of that next week, but I pray, God, that, that those of us, God, that are maybe just say we're a secularist, we're a humanist, we don't believe in this, God, that, that Lord, we would get this. 
God, that Christianity is different than every other world religion because every other world religion says, do this, 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 and this, packages it up, Lord, and sometimes neat boxes, sometimes messy boxes, and says, this is how you get God. But God, that's just trying to get control back from you. God, may we be gospel people that live according to what you have done for us and offer grace and love and sacrifice. Change our hearts, God. Change our hearts, so God, that we look and live differently. May the people in our workplaces and the people in our streets, God, may we, they see us like someone who falls in love for the very first time. That the love that they experience has completely reoriented the way that they see the world. May that be said of us. That our love for Jesus... God, you said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. But God, it starts with loving you. It doesn't start with commands. God, I pray as we sing this song that we would recognize the truths in them, how they're reflected in your word. And God, I pray again that if there's anybody in this room that has never committed their life to following you, Jesus, putting their faith in the gospel news, the good news, that they would do so today. And I pray for those of us, God, that have thought that we've responded to it, but we've responded to it in moralism. God, may we repent and may we turn to you. Pray for the parents in this room today and they're resonating with what I shared. May they understand your grace. And God, when they experience their kids freaking out, may they see that their kids are really us in the scenario with you. So God, may we love our kids with grace and, and so much just response to you. God, we, we need you so desperately. We thank you for Christmas and this season. Amen.